Welcome to Lateral Conversations. My name is Thomas Mark. This is a podcast about the evolution of consciousness, psyche and culture. I speak here with people who have something important to contribute to the development of spirit and society. My guests are therefore artists, philosophers, academics or activists, people not only with great ideas, but also the willingness to put them into the world. By doing so, I hope to contribute to the evolution by finding and exploring ideas and finally providing them to you. There's nothing more powerful, Victor Hugo once said, than an idea whose time has come. And if such a time for an idea has come, we can only find out by talking about them. Tobias Churton is my guest on this episode of Lateral Conversations. He is Britain's leading scholar in the field of Western esotericism and an authority on Gnostic spirituality. He holds a master's degree in theology uh, from the Brazenos College in Oxford and was appointed honorary fellow and faculty lecturer in Western esotericism at Exeter University. Uh, Mr. Churton is also a filmmaker, poet, composer and the author of nearly 20 books including The Gnostics, The Golden Builders, Occult Paris, The Babylon Gene and numerous biographies on William Blake, Alistair Crowley and Gurdjieff. I had the distinct pleasure to have a conversation with Mr. Churton. This was a conversation I really longed to have uh, for quite some time because I think amidst all the Eastern sp spirituality that we are encountering today, Western esotericism and Western spirituality has quite a lot to offer and is better equipped to deal with the Western mind. I hope you will enjoy this long conversation, which is very rich on different topics. So, this is Thomas Mark from Lateral Conversations. Good day and good luck. I'm doing this podcast for three years now, and I was always looking out for somebody with an educated perspective on this whole strand of uh, Western spirituality, because, you know, we, we have so much integral theory and so much... Uh, new age and thing, but but nobody really has like a like an educated or like a deep perspective on this thing. I, I recently had a podcast with Mitch Horowitz, who is like the uh, like the new thought thinker, you know, yeah. this, and that was quite interesting. But I but I was longing to talk with somebody about like Western esotericism and Alistair Crowley because I think there's so that's such such a rich Uh, tradition and and uh, has so much to offer so I was really happy to to find you on the internet I don't I don't know exactly how but you know it's like so that's that's my that's my general well I've made it I've made it my my life's work to clarify and clear up uh, everywhere where I find complexity obscurity Uh, unnecessary mystery 
or uh, just plain bullshit. Uh, My job is to clear it all up, show how things actually developed, who was doing what, and uh, authenticate sources. Right. Uh, And at the same time, to be creative in one's approach to all of those studies. So that's that's been my... uh, my life really I, I, an old bishop asked me when i was 20 20 <laughs> i just left oxford and he said what do you want to do with your life and i one of those questions almost impossible to give a straight answer but i just came out i said i want to pass take what i think has been forgotten in the past or what is terribly important and pass it on to my own generation and the future right and that's 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 sort of what i've been doing for 35 40 years wow so so um what you're doing this is basically a scholarly approach or are you i don't know if i may ask are you are you personally like part of that movement are you like part of that tradition i I feel i feel i am that movement (laughs) all right all right all right Mm-hmm. You know, Salvador Dali, uh, surrealism, c'est moi. Uh, I, right. La gnose, c'est moi. <laughs> right, right. I, I feel that I, I, I had the strange um, uh, destiny of, of carrying this work through. Right. And, um, but also but, in practice. But, but, but in a scholarly way. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, truth, truth, nothing but the truth. Right. Uh, but I also, I mean, I'm, I, I write music. Uh, I, I can write, for, you know, I was started as a poet. And if you could live as a poet, I would have lived as a poet. Right. Uh, so that gives me the inside track on this information. I'm not coming at, I'm not coming at it from the outside. I'm coming from the inside. So the your question you were going to ask was, am I a member of a Masonic organization? And this yes. thing. I've had business with um, uh, British Freemasonry and Freemasonry in America and in Europe and in, with Rosicrucian groups. Right. I'm not a, me- I'm not a member of anything, but I'm familiar with the main people, things like the OTO, uh, right. Crowley's order, uh, but also the Grand Lodge of England, I edited their international journal. In fact, I founded it and ran it for three years. Oh, and we had 35,000 subscriptions, uh, paid subscriptions from zero, started with zero, 35,000. Um, unfortunately, the Grand Lodge of England took the magazine over uh, in a, uh, a stupid way, in my opinion. And uh, it was, it was, it was an independent voice of Freemasonry, but it served the order. So I think I always like these bridge positions where I'm communicating from one side to another. Mm-hmm. In scholarship, my job is to bring the scholarship, the best scholarship to the intelligent lay person. Right. You know, and if I'm involved with Masonry, it's to bring it to that as well and, and, and get people to understand these, uh, some of these orders. Right. But I, I never felt, the need to belong to an to an, an order because I, I feel I am already intrinsically part of uh, a historical order. In in, in, in what way? How, how would you despise that? Well, I just felt um, from a very early age involved, not only involved but uh, in some way um, a key to it. And it was really something that a long for a long period I didn't want to do deal with so i was more interested in rock music and having fun 
and play, playing with this sort of thing rather than dealing with the burden of the responsibility. So now that's a personal thought, that's my personal involvement is I can't not be involved. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not here to, I'm, I'm really, I'm more here to teach than, uh, I'm learning all the time. Right. The, the role is, is passing it on right. and, and purifying it. Um, but which is a very unpleasant task in many ways because you're constantly faced with people's ignorance and preconceptions about all these subjects. Right. Um, so it's, 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 I hear the music of this esotericism. I, that, I, that right. not only, I know that you hear the music of it, I can express the music of it. Right. Interesting. So, um, Mr. Mr. Chodin, it's like, um, if you don't mind, I mean, we, we just hit the ground running. Right. I mean, I, I, I was involved with the, we, we were trying to reform the United Grand Lodge of England. Right. Uh, it was being reformed in an external way in terms of its public relations and its, um, its, its image to the public. But I was much more concerned with recovering the spiritual meaning of Freemasonry. Right. And making that available to members because they were being denied it. And I think, again, they are being denied it again now. Right. Um, there's always been a, a little struggle going on in Grand Lodge in, in England uh, between the people who, who really understand what's inside the bottle and the people who really love the bottle. So what, what is the basic idea? Um, if, you, if you had to summarize the, the basic idea of that strand of spirituality of that Western esotericism and those lodges, so what is the, the music that you are able to feel and to hear and to express in your it's work? A, yes, it's, uh, it's basically apocatastasis, which is a Greek word uh, we find in Oregon, the third century uh, church father. Apocatastasis is the restoration of the original image of man. And that is what the, all of this material is involved with. It is about restoring a broken image and releasing the mind from a certain kinds of obsession that prevent that return. If you think of all, all the esoteric systems, they all have some kind of pillar or tree image or ladder image in them and the the dynamic of them all is ascent ascent so it's this theme of return uh that is that is that is what we're talking about it's really trying to undo the effects of the fall or double fall if you like depending on which particular myth mythology you go for This is, this is the theme. This is what it's all about. Man as he normally is, is not enough. This is, right. this is the dissatisfaction and pain of, of the situation, which the various small g Gnostic systems address. It's what, right. man, it's what man ordinarily is lacking. And for this reason, he stumbles and falls. Occasionally, he gets inspiration, inspirited. He, ex he accesses a spiritual level of mind. And he, with the courage and faith and love, he will make amazing strides, as we saw in the 1960s, right. celebrating this month with the uh, religious experience of going to the moon and back. And I use my words carefully. Of course, it was a scientific experience, but it was 
would have been absolutely impossible without the internal tuning of key members of that massive, massive project to something bigger than themselves. And I think it, uh, the universe answered with a grace and as it were, as it were, don't take me too literally, but as it were permitted this. It's quite um, strange because there's like this new television series which is called Strange Angel. Have you heard of it? About no. about Jack Parsons who was... Oh, I know. I'm all about Jack. <laughs> yeah, 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 who was like um, a crucial, involved, yes. he, he, crucial part in the rocket development at yeah. one hand and yeah. on the other hand a disciple of Alistair Crowley as far as I understand. He should have listened more closely to what Alistair was saying to him. <laughs> Mm. You know, you know, he got swindled by by Hubbard. Uh, oh, Jack Parsons, right? Mm. Yeah, mm. I mean, it's a well-known story. It's in, uh, it's told in my uh, '60s book. I think it's in there. Right, but let us go go step back to what you just said because no, this idea of, uh, of ascension. Because my what what I associate with is are, are two things. Like the first thing would be um, like the idea of developmental psychology that you're, we're always growing in complexity and, you know, there's like traditionalism and then modernity and postmodernity and we're, we're growing basically yeah. um, and getting more mature. And on Absolutely. the other side, it's more like the spiritual notion or even philosophical notion because Pl Platon wrote a, a big deal about this in Schopenhauer. This is the idea of the, of the diamond, of the genius, of the holy guardian angel, that, sure, sure. that uh, perfected part which lies beyond our conditioned realm of behavior, of our ego, so to say, and that we can, that we can ascend to, to, um, to realize that in, in, in a kind of way. So is that going in that direction, what you mean with ascension? Oh, for sure, yes. I mean, the, the acosmic uh, self, um, There was always a debate. There's a debate, I think, in Neoplatonism as to whether this uh, daimon is part of the cosmos or actually outside it. Um, whether the daimon has actually slipped into the, the world of change and uh, birth and death and, and duality, or okay. whether, in fact, it's, it's, it's in fact stands outside it. Uh, very difficult question. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's so interesting that you say that because I wanted to have exactly that conversation with one of my previous uh, uh, guests, but it wasn't kind. That wasn't really possible because it's it's like you can't really answer this question. No, because you can't transcend the transcendent. Exactly. You know, you, you to to the only the only the only being that can answer that is the diamond uh, himself. As it right, and it's one of those uh, deeply spiritual and philosophical questions that evade answering. You have it is it is by definition a cult. Part of it is always a cult. Part of it is always uh, reaching in into our world, and so we have to we have to deal with it and, and find the narratives to yeah to to navigate. Yeah. I, I personally take it that the what you call the daimon, if you like, or the self, or the holy guardian angel, or um, God in us, or the the Brahman, or however you uh, address this mystery, uh, I personally would take it as being outside of the uh, the shtalag in which we live. Right. Um, personally, I think that that makes a great deal more sense of it. Right. So if you look at the Western tradition, so and, and I think 
like lots of spirituality has to, uh, deals with Eastern tradition now, you know, like brought forth by... The, the well, my new book's about India and about Hinduism, Buddhism, Raj Yoga, and specifically Janana. Yeah. Uh, Raj Janana Yoga, which is yeah. basically... The only question I'm still asking is which came first, uh, Alexandrian Gnosis or uh, a developed Janana Yoga. Right. I, I, they seem to me, to, they emerge, as far as we can tell, at roughly the same time. One may have come from the other, they may have, have, have emerged separately. But right. you have this idea, anyway, of the, uh, the Brahman coming through the crown of the head, going through the body to the lower parts and so right. And getting this system in some sort of order is, is, the, aim, is the aim of the union. Yeah. Now, that is very, very, very similar to the image in Gnosis of the Sophia with a tree which reaches down into the earthly realm and she comes and redeems the seeds, the pneuma, uh, and re restores them to the pleroma. Right. In Christian Gnosticism of the second, third century, you have very, very similar itinerary, except the, the Valentinian uh, itinerary or the main Gnostic one is um, cosmic in scope whereas the Janana Yoga or that it, you're dealing with the microcosm right so, uh, so let, um, I, I would like to focus on the, on, on the western idea because like, we, we are so entrenched with like eastern ideas and, and too I many I think yeah, hmm? I, I think too many too many, in, we, we borrowed too many concepts from the East, which are not, uh, so Ro, Rudolf Steiner certainly felt that the, the mental makeup of, of, of the traditional Hindu is, is subtly different to the Western mental makeup. And therefore these terms do not translate. Right. And you, it's a bit like you, you, you have to, if you really want to get into Hinduism, you've really got to become a Hindu. You've got to be immersed in it, like George Harrison seems to have been. That's true, yes. And, and of course, the more immersed in it he became, the less interested he was in what was going on around him. Yeah, that's the problem that, you know, there's a reason why so many Westerners who study Buddhism or Hinduism that failed to reach its goals, so to say, because like the, the model and the structure doesn't fit properly to, to the Western educated mind. And this is where I think that the Western esotericism, where, where so much potential lies, basically. Well, I think we, 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 we just, we've, we've made good use of the ego. <laughs> this is the point. The Western right. tradition has, has exalted the self experience. Right. And therefore, it's, it's, it's point, pointless if our, if our esoteric system doesn't recognize uh, the material it has to deal with. Right. We are people who like to do things. Uh, we like to see things made. We care about what is going on outside of us. Right. Uh, we believe that it's actually possible that the world is improvable. We, we have notions of progress. Uh, and they're not merely moral notions, they're quite material. Uh, and we, re we revel in novelty and art and creativity. And I'm not saying there is no art or creativity in the East, but there is such a dynamism in the West, or at least there has been since um, we were released from the Catholic Church right. in the 16th century. And uh, the inner man has 
made a kind of marriage with with the outer world in the west which is which is a unique western experience i think where we're going wrong of course is that we are leaving too much of the inner man behind and are getting too involved in the world now the world from an, a spiritual point of view is uh, is value free it's it's a value neutral and if you're totally involved with it you'll be invaded by this value free quality and the result is nihilism which is what happened to germany german culture unfortunately in the 20th century it it, it slipped into this chasm of of nihilism right and that's why heidegger is talking about that in marburg at the time the, at the end of the weimar republic and there is you get this terrible hopelessness and an abandonment of the christian tradition altogether right uh you end up with hitler saying that evolution is god you know that's that was and that was and that created the hell uh of that situation for mm. millions you know mm. so we are trying to since the 60s as i understand it we we've been trying to recover the dynamic creativity linked and married to the spiritual being so with the advent of postmodernity as well no like when when yeah, I, i don't believe in postmodernity in any shape or form i think it's a, a complete facile uh, intellectual rubbish uh, it, is meaningless uh, it is it, you know i just it, it's it's show me these postmodern people i i go in the street and i meet people they're not postmodern at all No, I mean just as a as a reaction against modernity and the cold world and the cold mechanism and the rejuvenation. Yeah, but why call it post why call it postmodern? You know, what who categorizes what was modern? There were many good things in the modern uh, experience anyway. For sure. Yeah. But there were well also the concentration camps. So and there was like the I wouldn't call the concentration camps a recruit uh, uh, an epitome of modernism uh, at all. Uh, no, the fact that used modern technology to to murder people the mentality of them you can trace back to uh, the middle ages if you like <laughs> mass murder of your enemies well constantinople jerusalem 1099 whatever it is yeah you, you know if you're going to say that you have the right to murder i mean the, i think the problem and i had that's not a that's not a modern attitude No, I think that the problem the problem is and I had this discussion quite sometimes like the, the what what we uh as what want we define postmodernity but you can because I I I Why bother? Why bother defining it? It is No, no, but but I get I'm your just, point. I'm just putting that question to you. No, 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 I get your point because many people do that. Uh other people go uh, around that and say well for idea industrialization and and the idea of the factory and and say um the, the the concentration camps as factories of death and so you have like these 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 ideas um and the sort of idea to go beyond that so to speak and i i get that sentiment also and so and i think it was richard rorty said the problem with postmodernity is that nobody knows what it is well because it isn't anything you've invented it's a, it's a, it's a an academic creation uh of the, it's merely a word there is no it has no content and it hasn't grown out of people's experience it's simply uh post foucault fucking about you know right. it's 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 it, it's it's all a part of this sort of move to semiotics and obscure obscure philosophies that sort of got one foot in wittgenstein and another in in bakunin you know it's it's, it's piddling around it's it's academic it's not really happening talked about and 
it's become a vogue. But it, to me, it's Flogiston, you know? Do you remember Flogiston? No, what's that? Oh, I think it was Joseph Priestley, the uh, scientist, if that's the right word, natural philosopher, 18th century, because they, they were trying to find out what air consisted of. And they, I think they'd found oxygen, I forget. Uh, but in order to explain the experiments, he decided there was this substance called phlogiston. And he wrote a, a book about it, and it was discussed with great seriousness by scientists at the top men of the time. And phlogiston became uh, a currency. Uh, right. it, it, was, it was analyzed. It was described. Its behavior was, you know, it, I think they even isolated phlogiston. Wow. Phlogiston, like the idea. Like in yeah, the but I think, I think it was basically they hadn't discovered nitrogen properly or something of those lines. The point is, is scholars invent things that don't exist and then try to explain where they are and, wh and what they are and, and why they are. And so right. So. We have a slightly similar case in Western esotericism with the word Gnosticism, which they've been trying to define um, for years, you know. And, and I, when I do these interviews, often people will say, what do you think of the word Gnosticism? I said it's a useful scholar's term for certain developments that we don't fully understand that occurred in the second and third century. But don't tell me it isn't a thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't a thing. But it was careful, you know, nominalism. Uh, we shouldn't presume that our words refer to, to a living thing. No, no, I, no, I, I, I get that. Mm. I, prefer, I prefer to use language where I can, which actually refers to living experiences of people. So how would you go about, like, when you, when you uh, leave normalization and, and words as things, if you leave it around and have... Ha um, would have to approach Gnosticism or the experience of, yeah. of, of that thing. How would you elaborate on that? How would you describe that? And its development, maybe, for, for a listener who don't quite has a grasp on these things. I mean, you I talked about ascension, right? So, yeah. And, and well, I, I think, obviously, what, what we're seeing... Uh, I, I tend to look at the, uh, the Gnostic writings as being the product of very small numbers of people and probably a handful of individuals who've got an idea, who've got a basic formula for what they consider uh, understanding the Old Testament, the book of Genesis and the teaching of Jesus. And their realization is that the spiritual, the reason Jesus is crucified, the reason the prophets are stoned, and the reason human beings suffer is because the world cannot tolerate a consciousness that goes beyond it. And they use the word gnosis, the Greek word, for knowledge. In other words, you're, you're attacked because you know something that the world does not know. And this knowledge takes you beyond yourself. Now, if you're going to call this a movement, uh, then you can say, well, there's a Gnostic movement. But if you say there is such thing as Gnosticism, i.e. A, a, a coherent doctrine, then I say that, in fact, the evidence uh, is strongly uh, critical of that idea. And we should talk about the things as they are and in their own, in their own categories. That's right. 
Have you, uh, do, do, are you familiar with uh, Jordan Peterson and his biblical series? No. Right, then, then forget about it. It's, um, <laughs> no, no, because he, he, has, he is a psychologist and he has like this uh, idea that there's still a lot of wisdom to be found in those biblical stories the, 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 from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Oh, he's right. He's absolutely right. I would, if I was able to, I would write almost exclusively about the Bible. Right. It's, so he did like whole lectures, two hours lectures about yeah. the first sentence or, or the, the very tiny story about Cain and Abel. And, and he attracts so much wisdom out of it because it's, he said it's so codified, like the, this story of Cain and Abel over, over centuries and people have remodeled it and, and condensed it in this tiny story. And you can talk and you can extract so much information about, about this tiny and, and ever more complex getting stories. And so that's, he has like a 13 hour. So he's, a, so he's a sort of Kabbalist really. Well. I mean, he's looking for an inner, he's looking for an inner meaning in, he's taking what's a bit, apparently a simple story and, and finding uh, a hidden meaning in it. Yes, although he is a, he would describe himself as a psychologist, right? But technically he does Well, maybe Kabbalah is psychology. Well, I would say it is. <laughs> But we are not using that word anymore. No, no. no, no. <laughs> but um, I do find the older I get and the more I know about this stuff, that the words become very flimsy things that we're right. refer referring to. Right. Because I think all the, uh, what's that line of Jim Morrison? Um, all the colors uh, connect to create the boat which rocks the race. You know, they do, it, it, it's very difficult. Once you once you found the right keys, they you open a door. You're in another room. The, the next room's pretty much similar. There's right. a door, and you find you're breathing the same kind of air. And uh, the, the differences the differences tend to be cultural, historical, and um, mythological. Right. But the, the essence the essence of the 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 experience seems seems to be the same. Right. What but that's that? one of the things I'm addressing in my new book is if you put if you put all these esoteric traditions together and sort of extract if you can the the uh, the sap you know the living sap from each of them do you end up with a sort of super doctrine so I'm going to be exploring that in the next section of the book I'm addressing because it's always been a, a view of mine that um, the esoteric tradition of each religion um, encapsulates what is universal in it and therefore what is most useful and most scientifically true if by science we mean the experience of knowledge and if it therefore there ought to be through all these different traditions a unified as they would say in science a unified field theory there ought to be a unified uh, spiritual system right um, that should be that in theory should be taught as an experience and accessible rather than the view that you have to be uh, indoctrinated with the with the beliefs or that you have to believe them i.e., you have to have faith you know do you know that old english super i'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you but that's a, yeah. that's a super interesting thought when you compare because you said what is useful in one a wisdom tradition, and then yeah. you have all the wisdom traditions, and you see what what is the what are the common elements. Yes, so like at, at the most basic level, and when you can 
uh, you know, uh, find them and, and elaborate on them. And then you have like what you call is like a super doctrine. That, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm investigating. I intend to investigate right. whether okay. that works, whether it works. Right. So, so I've, I've, I've just wrote a book last year. I finished it about, um, you know, the, basically exactly this kind of thing. But I, but I didn't did it from the perspective of comparative religion, but more from the architecture of the psyche and the mind where, you know, we all have to share basically the, the basic architecture of the human mind and how we discovered future and became, and, and then there was the fall you know, from, from Garden Eden and we, we became human and basically. And so we, we had to deal with the future and in dealing with the future, we devised some basic techniques and, 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 and I, I described basically two techniques that you can find in every, every wisdom religion. This is basically the self-sacrifice and on the other side, um, the, the, the battle with chaos. And like, these are just words, but these are basically techniques we employ on a daily basis. I mean, I, I'm confronting chaos now, talking with you because it's an un, un, undifferentiated, undifferentiated space and I'm leaving my comfort zone. I'm putting me out here. And, and, and we're self-sacrificing. We are leaving stuff behind and to reach something. And we are, we're doing that for our kids. And these are basic techniques. And, and I think these are codified uh, basically in every wisdom tradition. I mean, like, what is bhakti yoga or raja yoga? What is that else than to, to sacrifice all the egoic stuff to, to, to battle chaos and to, to bring something new about the, the perfected human being? But you have to sacrifice it, you know? Well, sacrifice actually means to make something sacred uh, rather than the idea that it necessarily means um, giving something up. Uh, what you can, you can interpret... Right, you the, the sure. sacrifice in, in different ways. Right, but what you're really referring to is this perennial doctrine of the ego. That uh, I mean, when I was a boy, the phrase from Christian teaching that always resonated with me the most was, "He who tries to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life, I think the phrase was, for my sake, will save it." And I I really decided to live by that, and um, to keep my own self ego absolutely out of the picture but that's and that's a that's a super in, doctrine and in every encounter i had i was more i always took more interest in in front of me rather than projecting myself right um but there did develop in that what i've worried about was a sort of masochism that you in fact can become the, you know, the, this idea of the ego is not as simple as I think Alistair Crowley expressed it uh, at times and is very common in, in the Oriental schemes, the yoga schemes particularly, and obviously in Buddhism, which who, Buddhism is at war with the ego, if you can have a war with something that you claim doesn't exist, <laughs> as in Buddha, Buddhism doesn't accept that the ego is, is a reality anyway, so it's, uh, it's an illusory war. To which I would then say, "Well, why fight it then?" <laughs> but uh, I, I, I remember that thing, uh, the song of Brian Wilson, and uh, the original song on Pet Sounds was "Hold On to Your Ego," uh, which was meant to defend people from a bad trip, bad the LSD trip, the, that you lose yourself. Um, now, 
I think that's a very healthy, I think there's a healthy ego. And I think there's an unhealthy obsession with one's own sensibilities. And I think the trouble is that this ego language from the Eastern religions has been taken into the West and has become critical of our essential being. And it's been tied to socialism. So uh, the problem with, uh, from, for many neo-socialists is you can say that uh, it's the ego is the problem, but if we all share together, we can transcend the ego by all working together and all this sort of thing. So people have become very, you get words like patriarchy have come in, you know, patriarchy is supposedly some kind of terrible sin. You know, it's male for a start, so that makes it particularly sinful. Um, it suggests primacy uh, and it suggests ego. And ego is the great sin. It's one of the uh, PC sins. You mustn't be egotistical. Um, whereas I think some of the most delightful uh, creative minds have been quite seriously egotistical and very often quite unpleasant. Uh, I would say Wagner would fit that to category quite well. Yeah, um, I think there's like this this idea that. But I do that, think we should analyze what we mean by the ego uh, uh, before we start uh, sacrificing it. <laughs> no, that's that's completely true. I mean, what I, what I wanted to say is like the PC crowd wants wants the politically correct artist, you know, the one that yeah. doesn't have any edges. Well, it seems but, to have no personality at yeah, all. Yeah, but this, that does not happen. That does not work. It's still, it's, it, and, and if you look at history, like, I mean, like Caravaggio kills his wife with an axe or something like that. And yeah, yeah. Bowie had his problems with young girls. And, you know, you, it's like the list goes on and on and on. And, and sometimes you have to. Yeah, what we have today is a new righteousness. I call, I call the PC brigade the new righteous. And they remind me of the zealots. Of yeah, and the Protestants, huh? the like, Protestant, the iconoclast, the people who want to bring everything down they don't understand. Right. They want to label everything they see in terms of their little worldview. So exactly. this statue represents this. This image represents that. You're wearing that represents this. And this, according, we and look in our book and oh look, that's a, that's an ego sin. That's a PC sin. That's a sin. You can't live. Uh, the one thing I did like about the old Catholic order, um, one thing, <laughs> was the conception that we're all sinners. Right. You know? uh, and that, uh, you know, it's a church of sinners. And that Jesus' teaching of forbearance, do not look at the moat in your brother's eye until you've noticed the beam in your own. Uh, this sort of thing. In other words, judge not lest ye be judged. Now we have a culture of judges. Uh, this, ju this judgment is going on all the time. I hear it every night. People are being condemned for this, condemned for that, condemned for the other. Certain kinds of sin are much, much worse, apparently, than any other. Yeah. While meanwhile, excuses are constantly being made for people who do terrible things. Well, but because yeah. they've been able to relate that individual to, oh, his upbringing, oh, his color, oh, the sexuality, oh, he was oppressed, she was oppressed, somebody was oppressed, and that gives them the reason, and we should be sympathetic. This is all bullshit, and okay. we've really lost. These, these ideas are, are, you know, say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. These are all micro perversions of uh, uh, this little truths gone wrong right what they've done is they've taken god out of it <laughs> thrown god out they're left with all this sort of moral maze they can't really work out how, who should do what why when and where 
and PC comes in and says, it's this easy. All you've got to do is uh, sympathize with this group, sympathize with that group, sympathize with the other, give up eating meat, you know, hate capitalism, right. um, work, as a, work as a team, uh, reduce your self-output, and, and produce things that we all approve of. Right. No, it's, it's, like, it's exactly this, this victim mentality, which, which it's bothers me a lot. And this is the reason why I, why I have this affinity to, to like philosophers like Nietzsche or Schopenhauer or, or like spiritual figures like, like Alistair Crowley, because what they, what they do is, is like proposing a philosophy of strength. Yes. And, and yes. to, you know, it's like, okay. Uh, health, health, I would say. If, yes. if, if the word strength uh, makes people think of jackboots, which of course it does because of the, the way we the war is now presented to people. Um, but it's really about being healthy. It's about being a full human being. A vol, volmensch, I think was the old German phrase. Wasn't it? Yeah. Volmensch, volmensch, full man, you know, being a full person. Right. And, uh, and the, ed the education system fails in producing, you know. Yeah. Like, like it's made people doubt themselves. I lived in Germany a lot in the uh, 80s. Right. And there are several things that began to annoy me while I found going there a little bit harder every time. Even though I had more friends in Germany and people I love very much, I had more friends in Germany than I had in England. And I got on very well with a, 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 select, a, a stratum of young people I met in the Frankfurt area and in Berlin. But the thing that used to get me was I'd meet somebody and it didn't take long before they would start a sentence saying, meine Probleme ist. Right. My problem is, and I say, hey, you've got no problem. No, no, no. <laughs> You're fed. You've got a beautiful uh, friends. You've got a, you live in a lovely place. You know, you're not at war with anybody. You don't have a problem. What, what's this problem? Oh, in my mind, I'm not sure about this. And I said, if the sun and the moon should doubt, they would go out, quoting Blake. You're not here to live in a permanent sense of self-reproach and doubt. Uh, at all that's that's if you you know okay if you've done something terribly wrong you feel shame yeah, and you fail you fail utterly to to approach something uh, like 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 the diamond if you if you're constantly in a mindset of oppression and intersectionality and you're a victim of this and you're a victim of that and and uh, more more than everything you're a victim of your traumas and your problems and your past you well, will never a, get it's you a will declining get, so, declining circle. exactly and you you're, get going to, you're, the, going to, you're going to end up a neurotic uh, exactly, and you get never to the point where you can like, because what the diamond is basically doing, he urges you to act in an authentic and moral and and creative, and in, in this kind of sense, in a, in a, in a um, uh, strong manner. And so, but well, no, he might the diamond of a of a natural servant might be uh, being motivated to be quiet and thoughtful and and caring and serve people. Uh, there's no, you can't predict. Right. Uh, the individuality. This is Crowley's whole point: is you, we have no right to predict uh, the nature of another being. What we right, have but but to get to this point, you have to let go of this victim mentality. Other oh God, yes, yes, yes. So Absolutely. that's what I'm. So so you have to let go of all these. This is the law of the strong. That's right. Uh, that's the law of the strong. This is our law and the joy of the of the world. Right. That's the Crowley, uh, uh, Lieber Oz. This is the law of the strong. What, what do you make of that now, 100, 100 years later, or 100? It's, it's more. When did he die? Uh, 1947. Yeah. So now, 
It's what like, do I make of Crowley? No, no, of, of, of this kind of thinking, of this kind of um, spirituality, from this kind of, you, you, you said like this melody, you know, like, because he condensed, from my point of view, he condensed so much of this thinking, this, um, this Western esoteric thinking, this, yes, he this was Gnosticism, and he, he really brought, from my perspective, he brought forth something emergent, something new, something that weirdly still resonates and inform spirituality Western without Western spirituality, Western spirituality acknowledging that, say, Ken Wilber, I don't know if you know him with this interview. Yeah, but Crow Crowley, said, Crowley said that his system was not um, uh, the product of his own wi wishes. Uh, his, he, his view on what he thought was, I, I may have been called to announce this, but this is what is this is what's happening, and people are going to pick up on it anyway. Don't, they don't have to, they won't have to pick on it through me. He would see something like um, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon by Picasso, which I think was 1904 or 1907, about that time, around the time of the Book of the Law, and he would say that is the new Eon in paint. Or he might hear, or that I don't think he would like Stravinsky very much. I think he could happily see he would say this Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, this is the new eon in uh, sound. And I, the movies, he was very interested in movies, but uh, he had his own tastes and so forth. But the point is the new eon of which he spoke is here now and with us. What we're not aware of is how to work it. Right. <laughs> this is the problem. One of the reasons is that Crowley's teaching uh, which I think is 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 very valuable, but it's not for it's not for everybody at every time. I, it's something people must find through fight through seeking, and that is a problem. You you know you can't indoctrinate people with a doctrine of don't indoctrinate. Right. You know it's uh, what we have to do is 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 continually be on the watch to keep our world in a position where it can receive the truth we can't right. make it we can't make it receive we can only try and create an atmosphere where people are more likely to tune in no no but um, he was kind of a trailblazer like even oh god he was a, he was a religious pioneer there is no doubt in my mind that he was he was as important in his way and will be seen as important if we survive uh, in 100, 200 years, I think he will be seen as a, a, as a St. Paul, uh, not only of the West, but of the East as well. Which, uh, is, which is kind of weird, because let me, let me say this, because, you know, you have a one side, I, I wanted to say this, Ken Wilber, and he's like this famous psychologist, philosopher, who holds this integral theory on, on spirituality and looks for some kind of super doctrine. He fails, kind of. But in his other books, you know, you, you can see the blueprint of the Libra 777, for example. It's like the basic idea. So it's this comparative... Correspondence, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Wilbur does that a lot. And he's like hugely, hugely famous with that. And so and you can clearly see the, the line, you know, the, the tradition. Although yeah. he never mentioned that. And, and on the other side, and this just by sheer accident, I was talking like day before yesterday with somebody and Alistair Crowley came up and the guy, he wanted to convince me that Alistair Crowley actually didn't kill anybody. And I was like, really, those rumors still are around and are around to, you know, to be, to be. Well, he's been demonized. Yeah, yeah. Mm. We've, we need to demonize him. 
not demonizing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously Crowley's system was peculiar to himself. Um, I think the, you know, you can get very lost if you think you should follow in his every footstep and uh, start w w being concerned about Newt and Horbechedet uh, or these gods of Egypt. Uh, Crowley was looking for something outside of Christianity which made sense of his personal spiritual experience. He was a very spiritual bloke, uh, but because of his upbringing, Christianity was not an option for him. Because he, he grew up in a Christian sect, the Plymouth Brethren. Yeah, it wasn't. His first 12 years he was very happy with when he was with his father. He used to travel. His father was a preacher and used to write religious books and send them out. He'd pay for them himself all around the world. And he had these books printed like, that's what you get in resurrection. And he would take young Alistair with him, his only son, on the road in Warwickshire, and they'd meet a workman. And his father would say, so what are you going to do after you've been digging the road? And this guy said, well, I'll probably go pub. And he said, what are you going to do after that? Well, I'll probably, and he would take them uh, to the point of, well, I suppose I'll be dead. And he'd say, and what are you going to do then? <laughs> and he loved his father, even though there was a, there was a kind of distance. The problem was that after his, fa his father died of cancer, and I think Crowley blamed the advice of the Plymouth Brethren that he undertake uh, an electro, uh, an experimental and rather eccentric treatment for the cancer of the tongue that he had. And he died quite soon after. And I think Crowley really regarded the brethren as idiots. And after the age of 12, he definitely rebelled. I think one of the main things was that his, his mother, who he was not close to particularly, uh, her, she brought her brother in as protection and her brother was an evangelical maniac and they sent him to this terrible uh, private school for the children only the children of Plymouth Brethren where Crowley was persecuted bullied and un really underwent he was a very proud boy and he was treated very badly and his health broke down and all of these experiences and, and quite a few others gave him the view that Uh, as he put it, the enemies of faith became more attractive to him. But that was a sort of adolescent thing. It was stayed with him all his life, this sort of a, a profound distaste at holy, holy people. Um, he hated all this sort of religious hypocrisy, righteousness. But, you know, but he, he, he's very interesting. At various points in his life, he had good things to say about Luther and Melanchthon and the Reformation, the Reformers. He said, who gave us our first freedom. He had good things to say about Catholic uh, aspects as well. Um, but the, the, the fact of the matter, he says, is, look, he said, well, okay, so if you want Christianity, go for the full thing, like I had. Go right. for a complete evangelical fundamentalist sect, because they know more about the Bible than the liberals do anyway. And, you know, if that's what you want, that's it. But do you really want it? Do you, is this really what you want? It's up to you. Now, the question then was, if that's not what you want, what do you do? Well, he nearly became a fully-fledged Buddhist. And I think his thinking was dominated hugely by Buddhism for, quite, for about five to 
five to ten years. That was that, through his uh, friend... Um, Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett. Mm -hmm. Alan Bennett taught him so much. And, and Bennett was the first to establish um, a Buddhist school in Britain, is that true? He, no, he, was, he led the first Buddhist Sangha to Britain in 1903, now hang on, was it? Yeah, 1903. And it wasn't, it was very unsuccessful because he had so many rules he had to live by uh, that he couldn't participate in a lot of the activities that would have become natural. And of course, he had this terrible asthma and everything. Now, but they did discuss in 1901, uh, Bennett and Crowley seriously discussed joining together and leading a Buddhist mission to Europe, doing it together. And, uh, and then Cairo happens the next year, uh, 1904, sorry, three years later, uh, in 1904, and it blows Buddha out, not completely, But something in Crowley's mind was not going to accept this disactivism that he found in. He loved Bennett deeply and he had great respect. He had great respect for Buddhism because he said it's, a, it's the only scientific religion. Right. And Crowley was very, very seriously interested in science, chemistry, physics, the laws of nature. Um, but he also understood that there was an inner law as well. And that was something he'd perceived. Uh, there's more to it, Horatio, than dreamt of in your philosophy. Um, the so from your perspective, you know, what, yeah, what ac yeah. actually happened? If I'm boring, you tell me. No, no, you don't. It's like hugely interesting. Also, right. So, so from what happened, because you, you just mentioned it, what happened from your point of view uh, as, a, as an educated scholar, like 1904, like with, uh, with Cairo, how? Well, how I think it was his, I would say in, in our terms, I'd say his subconscious rebelled against the Buddhism. Um, I think the conditions of it, I think when he met Rose, uh, Rose, um, I'm trying to think what her name was when they Rose met. Kelly? Well, no. she was christened Rose Kelly, but I think she, she was still being called, I think she was still Rose Skerritt at oh, the time. Mm. She'd been married to a, a, a doctor in South Africa. I mean, she was uh, a bit older than Crowley. Um, but anyway, when he met her, I think it shook him up quite a lot. He wasn't, he'd, he'd married her really to get her out of a problem, you know, and uh, he found he was in love with her. And this had a, uh, it seemed to affect him. Um, but of course, we also now know, I don't know if you've read my first biography of Crowley. We now know, because I've got the diaries that uh, he were made in 1924, when he let slip in his diary that when he went to Cairo in 04, he was suffering from a lesion on his tongue. Um, some sort of infected wound, maybe from a bite But in Ceylon, he'd gone to Ceylon with his wife for their honeymoon. And this thing was making him hallucinate. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because he describes his symptoms in 1924, where he was trying to come off heroin and having a terrible time. And he suddenly, he got a memory of coming back to Cairo. And he was in a sort of semi-hallucinatory state in Cairo. Uh, 
they were all, he and his wife were also having a, a laugh because he dressed himself up as Haiwa Khan. And uh, because he's fascinated the way people behaved when they were faced with aristocracy. And he just gave him a huge kick. You know, he thought it was Im immensely funny to see people react to an image. And he liked the image anyway. It was, it was, it was a boyish thing, you can say adolescent. Never left him completely. Right. He, lo he loved the joking side of life. Uh, but again, you, if you look at Crowley, there are all these different lenses that he presents you with. You can see him through all these. But I think he was partly hallucinating. Um, I don't know what Iwas is. I mean, it seems to me I, I was never totally convinced that he couldn't have written it from his subconscious. You know? Right. Now, he said, well, that's totally impossible because I would never have had the ability to do this. Well, I don't think that's true. That, I don't think it's true that people know everything that they know, really know. I mean, I'm amazed sometimes in my books what comes out when I get inspired. Right. And I read them later and I think, Jesus Christ, this is good. <laughs> Where did this come from? I didn't ratiate it. I didn't sit there thinking, working even, that out. Even if, if you, even if you did, uh, you still have to ask the question, why does it come forth now at that time? I think it came forth at that time in 1904, and I think he should have acted on it, by the way, as well, because he didn't. This is another thing. He said a lot of his problems were because he put the manuscript in his bag. He'd sort of dip in occasionally, and he'd think about it, and it, it played a part, but he was always trying to, you know, it, was, it presented too many problems for him, the, the text. So do you view Ivas as a kind of super diamond or super genius or as, as something? Well, I, just, we've got to remember this. Iwas is not his word. It's Rose's. Right. Rose said, uh, called him Iwas, according to the record. So she, she came up with the name. Iwas. So, but, okay, but what's your gist on it? So what, how? Well, I, I think if, the, if we have a diamond, Iwas is an expression of Crowley's diamond. Right. It's his holy guardian angel coming, uh, erupting briefly. Uh, but he, of course, if you then follow his career and when he reaches this first samadhi, his first true samadhi uh, in 1990, uh, end of 1906, if, if I remember right, it's 1906 or uh, When he has his first samadhi, which technically is meant to be the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel there is always this slight confusion in crowley between these different states you have the orgoides uh, when he's walking across china which is his uh, which means the dawning light which is uh, coming to divine consciousness um he gets intimations of it throughout 190 um throughout 1906 and Then it happens to him in, in, a, in, a, in a nursing home. Um, sadly, the hotel's been demolished. Mm. If we were in India, it would be a shrine, you know. But he, he has this experience. And he's turned on to it by hashish and by uh, making love to a very extraordinarily beautiful uh, actress called Lola, who called herself Lola. Um, It's all in my new book, uh, Crowley in India, out at the end of this year, the story of that. So all these things combine. And he was very doubtful. He wrote, he, he got his friend, George Cecil Jones. He says, I'm not sure whether this was produced by the hashish that 
I, I, I took a, he took a little bit of hashish. I think, right. I think he, he just ate some. Uh, I said, I can't. He said, and, and Cecil Jones says, no, no, it might have, it might have helped, but the experience is the experience. Crowley felt his whole face was glowing. And this, and it went on, it went on for several days, and then came back. What, so what do I think is happening? He's having, he's reached, he is reaching these heights of uh, of being that people write about and talk about, right? But, but don't, do not experience. And he had, he was experiencing them. Now, people who don't like Crowley, of course, always cast aspersions on the quality of his experience. Crowley would be the first to say, a samadhi is not the truth. The samadhi is the truth as you are able to see it at the time. Sure. Uh, so, what I think that boils down to this, Crowley believes that the Book of the Law was was as true a template for his existence as he was ever likely to get, but it re- would require a lifetime of understanding. Uh, but he also, so, but he also saw that for other people, this could be a very dangerous thing, which is why the discussion of it was forbidden. Right. He said, "Read it." Whatever it means to you, it means to you. Do not discuss it. Don't talk about it. He didn't want schools of thought erupting over it. Right. So in that sense, it's not a religious text in, in the tradition of religious texts. In the sense what, what, that it's recommended for, recommended for repetition and study. It's, it, he wanted a different kind of attitude to, to inspired works. He wanted a relativistic idea, uh, idea of inspired works. Again, this marks him out as a religious teacher, very different. So, but now we, we were talking a lot about his personal, the personal dimension of, of his experience. But, you know, like, and, and you just mentioned it, like there's a whole social dimension to it also, like why, you know, there's a shift between and after that, you know, the, the, the occult influence, say, on, on the social development, you know, of... Crowley was investigating occultism. Uh, he was, but even like, like even in the sixties, where you said like there was a ju- ju- rejuvenation, it was also a time when his ideas, like as far as I know, like like came firstly into the mainstream. Hmm. Wasn't that the case? I don't know if it was the first time, and I'm not sure. Uh, well, yeah, not the first time, obviously, but you know, it's, it's difficult. That's a difficult one to answer because. I think one of the problems of the 60s was that they did not have access to decent um, books about Crowley. I mean, the Confessions, uh, the Hill and Wang version, 1969, didn't come out till 69, (laughs) the end of the decade. It would have been very different, I think, if it had come out in 1960. I think that would have made a big difference. And many of the other texts weren't available either. And the OTO at the time, which was really the survivors of the OTO, and of course, Kenneth Grant's self-made group, later called the Typhonian OTO, um, was a very, very small number of enthusiasts. And the only people who really click into it are the rock and roll aristocracy. Um, John Lennon. David Bowie. Bowie later. um, And of course, Jimmy Page. That's because they hang, hung out in the bookshops and well, they met Kenneth Anger, of course, who was oh, right. in mm-hmm. London so much at that time. Um, so it really wasn't very present. 
and I don't think anyone noticed in 67 that Crowley was on the Sergeant Pepper cover. Right. I don't remember anyone remarking on it at the time. Mm. That was seen later. Um, Lennon was reading books about magic, but what books he would have been reading at that time, you can almost guess, really. Um, there weren't many good books on this whole field in those days. It was, and people weren't that interested either. Oh, right, okay. Um, in the sense that they weren't, they, they were not systematic, there was not systematic interest. People, things were happening very quickly. You'd catch an idea, somebody would say something, etc., etc. Do what thou wilt does not appear on Led Zeppelin until 1971, on mm. the run out groove of Led Zeppelin 3, as I recall. Uh, so it's really the 70s is when it's starting to pick up. I wish it had been the 60s. It would have helped the 60s not become such a factuous mess right mm -hmm. uh, that it did and it might have prevented this woeful uh, surge to the left that occurs in the late 60s and Tariq Ali and you know internet let's fight Vietnam is in your own home you know this phrase about you can fight the wickedness of Vietnam in your own society and mm -hmm. to, do this, to do this you must join our hard left uh, semi-Trotskyite whatever right. new socialism I mean I think Crowley would have knocked all that on the head because he would have recognized that uh, people do not realize themselves by disappearing into the group. I remember Carl Jung in 1961 being asked in a famous interview with John Freeman just before Jung died or not long before he died, saying, do you, do you think, uh, Professor Jung, that, that in times to come, people will surrender their individuality and uh, sort of merge into a kind of great sort of social, uh, sort of social um, um, uh, body and find themselves there. And he, and he listened to this crap for a bit and he just says, I don't think so. <laughs> he says, there is something in man, there is something in man which rebels against this idea that he is supposed to disappear yeah. for the other people benefit. Right. He says, I think rather, you know, and he develops it. Of course, he believes in individuation, which is exactly what Crowley stands for. Crowley was one of the first readers of Jung's Psychology of the Unconscious, which he got a copy right. of in, uh, in the summer of 1915. Right. And he writes in his diary in summer 15, I think I can find a way to Samadhi using Jung's book. Sure. This will give you an idea of what plane Crowley's really on. Yeah, he's, yeah. Not, he's not a fantasticist. Yeah, strangely enough, although Jung was like the one of the founding fathers of, of, of psychoanalysis, you know, he's he's not very well viewed on the left. He or, should have been called a psychosynthesis. Right. He doesn't want to analyze, it seems to me. He I think he became aware, and I whether it was his because his father was a priest and he had a spiritual view of things, right. I think he became aware that Freud was simply arguing himself up his own ass. Mm if you like, by an endless, um, haughty, haughty analysis of the causes of what... By the time you finish with Jung, you're in the situation of saying uh, civilization is neurotic and human beings are inevitably neurotic and neurosis is the condition of human beings. And you're pretty well left with that. Right. And all you can do then is talk about it the rest of your life. Now, I've met people who've spent a lot of time I did meet, it seemed to meet them less now. It's a, I think this, fa this analysis thing has declined in interest. Um, it, but 
you know, it, it just basically spend their lives talking about the particular their peculiarities. Right. Um, now, do you know uh, one one thing? It's like um, what what you s said about um, capitalism, you know, and the patriarchy, you know, whatever yeah. that is. So you know, it it you know the 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 one thing why. Like for, of all those systems we devised in the last, I don't know, 4,000 or even more years, you know, capitalism is, is the most is successful. It's not perfect and we can adjust it and we, we can do stuff, but it's like so, so, so successful and brought, brings whatever, like 20,000 people a day out of poverty. The reason for that is that it taps into this, you know, we are individuals and we can strive. You know, it's, 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 it's in a way, it's, it's, it's a pretty good system that gives you the chance to make something out, your, out of your life. Well, I, I, Jesus believed in it. You know. One of the biggest fallacies is this idea of Christian socialism. And the result of that is Tony Blair. Uh, he, was, he was affected by a Christian socialist when he was at Oxford. And he became, to, he, what, what religious dimension he had in his life uh, became... Let, uh, became focused into this Christian socialist idea that we that we re, that we um, realize the truth of Jesus' teaching through caring for others, through sharing all this stuff. Uh, I read the New Testament; I don't see this at all, and and maybe it's because I read Crowley first that I got a because Crowley was a was a a hell of a holy guru, as he called himself, in tongue in cheek. Um, you're seeing it from the God's eye point of view. Jesus tells this wonderful um, parable about the, the three, he, the man leaves the vineyard and he gives a quantity of, of, of money to each of the keepers. And he comes back and asks him, he said, what have you done with yours? And he said, well, you gave me, I'm just saying, uh, let's say, gave you five euros and I, I only managed to make eight euros. And he said, oh, dude, that's pretty good. Thanks very much. You earned me some money. Another guy says, well, I made some bad investments and I'm afraid I lost it. And he says, ah, fool, go and learn anything. Another guy says, I've got everything you first gave me. I dug a hole and here it is. You can have it back. I'm doing my sort of slightly ver version. Right. And Jesus says, get on. I don't want you here. The other thing you'll find in those parables is that none of the workers get the same wages. They get what the master thinks they deserve. Right. So the principle of equality does not exist in the Bible in any socialistic concept of equality. So you take equality out of the socialist argument, which they always call fairness, but that's fairness is something quite different. To be fair to somebody is to consider them. Now, what different individuals need depends on the individual. Yeah, it's a famous debate between equality of, of opportunity and equality of output. Yeah, but you were talking about capitalism. I don't believe there is such a thing as capitalism. I think it's another of these words because a, a, a historian called Marx wrote a book called Das Kapital. Right. People who read this overly badly written, almost impossible to penetrate uh, 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 tome. And they think, oh, he's describing capitalism. No, he was describing how he believed that the system of money worked. Now, if you start saying drop the word capitalism which is anism, and say creative use of wealth which is what we're talking about or simply using money that's what we're talking about that's not an ism it's not a philosophy sure. it's not a religion sure. it's 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 nothing more than a practical means to uh, affect a development in 
the wealth of a situation. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it, but it requires one great trick. And it is a trick. And this is the beauty of it. It requires you to believe that what it says on that note, I promise to pay the bear on demand, is a true promise. And so long as you believe in that, you can do wonders with this stuff called money. But yeah. it is a for, it's a form of magic. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's a, it's a tricky thing, language. Like you, you, you put an ism to that. And you, and you start believing you're dealing yeah. with a thing, you know. Yeah. And then they talk about, but he's a capitalist. What Meaning what? He's wealthy or that he works in a bank or yeah, yeah, he's, that's true. He's, he's looking after the insurance for your parents' house. What are we talking about here? Do you right. really want to get rid of money? Do you really want to? Do you, can you imagine what our ancestors live with? Do you want a strip of land? Yeah, yeah exactly. You, you know, going to go at it with a piece of wood because you can't afford a nice big machine? You know, it's just pathetic. I find it incredible. We used to re uh, uh, venerate the past, the wonderful Roman Empire. I'm not talking about its uh, debauched emperors. I'm talking about the aqueducts that were built. Right. You know, and the, the, the cisterns that were built, the, the sewers that were constructed fantastic you know now the romans had slaves we don't have slaves people are paid to do those things and we are getting aqueducts and bridges sure and no, the majority of the time you're going to say that we shouldn't do if you're going to say that we shouldn't do this and that we should, should all live in perfect harmony with the animals which we can't anyway because they'll eat us no, well, yeah we never have once they realize we're not going to kill them they'll eat us that's as simple as that because that's nature As I'm always saying, nature eats herself for breakfast, and she is no vegetarian. That's true. Let us let you know. Let us come back to the topic of of Alistair Crowley and and the social um, aspect of it, because what I and this is like a a, a nerdy question maybe, um, because you know you you not only wrote a book about or a couple of books about Alistair Crowley, but also four about, books now. Huh, yeah, about Gurdjieff. So and and so and I always viewed those two as you know not really an antipodes but like inhabitants of of a new time with different angle. Yes, I think that's fair. So so and and then they met. I don't know oh. how how much of that is true, but the story that I've heard is that you know he he waltzed in there and kick, got kicked out by Gurdjieff. So. Do you know more about this story? Well, there's, a, there's a whole chapter on this story in my Gurdjieff biography because I analyzed the sources uh, that have been told. And the details are in the book. And it's five books ago, so don't ask me to remember all the details. Right. But the, but the essence of the situation was that, uh, as far as I can tell, is that Crowley had a lot of respect for Gurdjieff, although he thought his system was, he said, a bit contrived. Right. Um, he was invited there by uh, one or two of uh, Gurdjieff's. Uh, Gurdjieff didn't have close friends, really, but uh, closer, closer people to him. He was invited there, and on one occasion, uh, on, there are occasions where people saw him sitting and so forth. I think uh, Gurdjieff may have been concerned that um, that Crowley may have been spying on him. Um, or he'd heard about Crowley's uh, exciting sex life, which, if that bothered him, shows you that uh, Gurdjieff was a hypocrite. 
um, because he was uh, very much given to sleeping with his female uh, closest disciples. Right. Um, but I, th I think in the end, I think it boils down to this. I think on one occasion, uh, um, Gurdjieff was very ill-mannered to Crowley, but it was certainly not provoked. It's in the interests of Gurdjieffians to knock Crowley, and they can do it easily because Crowley has few defenders. Right. And people are prepared to believe anything bad about Crowley. But Gerald York, who was uh, a friend of Crowley to the end of his life, even though he left Crowley's order because they had a, an argument about money, as ever, always money. Um, he, saw, he saw the two of them at a table in Paris, and he, he said they just watched each other warily. Is that true? Yeah. Now, Nancy Cunard... Nancy like, like the heat section and... and, and just, 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 you know... Robert De Niro and Al Pacino watching themselves. Just watching, yeah. They watched themselves warily at the table. And uh, there was a respect. Now, Nancy Cunard, who I'm very fond of, she spent some many happy hours talking to Crowley in the 1940s. Uh, and she said that uh, Crowley was livid about something Gurdjieff had done. But what it was, whether it was this rudeness towards him, Crowley was not a rude person. He, was, he had excellent manners. Um, and whereas we know Gurdjieff was extremely rude uh, and justified it by therapeutic reasons, you know, right. shock them into consciousness. The mad, the mad guru syndrome. Yeah. But anyway, my assessment is based on the different systems of Gurdjieff and Crowley. And if you ask me what I, how I think they compare, I would, I, I personally uh, think that um, Gurdjieff is a considerably less honest broker about himself and what he did. He's but do you view himself as, as, an, as, a, as a teacher of, say, a new time or like of a new eon or something like that? Do you see like there's a connection uh, inherent between the, these two teachings or is he somehow... Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things in common because um, Crowley uh, took an interest in Sufism. It's mainly an intellectual interest. He never went to Persia. He was going to. Uh, and he was... When he had to rewrite the OTO rituals for, for Americans in 1918, 1919, he used Sufi, the Sufi story of Al-Halaj to replace the story of Hiram Abif because the American OTO people were worried that the OTO system was too close to um, blue masonry, as we call it, ordinary masonry for three degrees. So he took, he took um, Hiram Abif out and put in Al-Halaj. Now, Gurdjieff had obviously learned a great deal from, from, from the Sufis. And right. that's, clear, that's clear from his curious book, uh, The uh, Meetings with Remarkable Men, which I analyze in quite some detail in my biography of him. And, um, it's a fantastic book. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very easy to digest, but it's very interesting to analyze it and try to relate it to any kind of historical fact that might exist You cannot, that book is certainly not an honest history. It is, uh, and it wasn't intended to be. It was intended to be a teaching piece. Right. But it's, it's you know, the thing about Gurdjieff is he's so idiosyncratic. His method, what he was really trying to do, 
was very much what was in his mind at any particular time. There's very little systematic system in it. He doesn't have a grade system, for example. Crowley was able to inherit the Golden Dawn system and adapt it. So you have right. some kind of progressive notion. Right. With, Gurdjieff, with Gurdjieff, you're not getting this at all. He was experimenting on people. He regarded... Yeah, he was experimenting with language. No, no he was experimenting with people. He deliberately, and says so, he used people as guinea pigs. Right. Now, Crowley didn't. Crowley used himself as a guinea pig. I th Crowley, Crowley recognized that uh, Gurdjieff was, a, was an adept. He says so in his diary. And, um, in fact, he asked, he said, hey, Gurdjieff, you know, if some of your pupils you can't do anything with, send them to me. Yeah, 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 I've, I've heard that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's there's, true. There's, there's footage of Gurdjieff. Do you know if there will ever be, like, discovered footage of Alistair Crowley? Well, there was a film made. Uh, there was a film made by that wonderful uh, guy who made um, the go. Uh, was it the Golem? He was a member of the Fraternitas Saturni, or what became the Fraternitas Saturni in Berlin, and uh, he left it because, uh, oh, um, it's it's all in the uh, Crowley in Berlin book. Trenker. Uh, was extremely rude to Crowley in Germany in 1925 and then tried to get the police to get him out of the country. And this Albin Grau, Albin Grau. Albin Grau was a filmmaker, film producer okay. of, of Shrek films, some of the most famous Shrek films of the 1920s. Like horror films or what? what yeah, yeah. He, he, he directed, uh, he produced uh, Nosferatu, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. And um, he had his own camera and Crowley had a, there was called the Vida Conference. They had this meeting at Vida down in central Germany in a, in a village. And Crowley was invited there. Trenker, who was supposedly the head of the OTO in Germany, was invited. And Jürgen Grosche was invited from the Inveja bookshop in Berlin. Okay. And they all went down there to see whether Crowley would be accepted as international head of the OTO. And there's several other theosophists came along who were members of the, one of the reformed German Theosophical Societies. Among them was Martha Kunzel and her boyfriend, and uh, who wrote a, a lot about Crowley and published Crowley's works in German in the 20s, rare editions now. Right. You really should read Crowley in Berlin, especially as you're from Germany, right. because it's a full account of all his activities in Germany, specifically Germany. Right. It, it, why it's not translated into German, I do not know. It's a vital piece of German history. Crowley lived in Berlin for nearly three years at the end of the Weimar Republic and only left because of its collapse, imminent collapse. He left in uh, July 32. Right, May. okay. Mm -hmm. So just you're getting very close to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to, Interesting. ...to all that. And he got out because he said if he didn't get out, he, he reckoned he'd be killed as a, as a political reason. Wow, okay. So, but... There was a moment where he was... Albin Grau took a camera to Vida, filmed Crowley, and uh, to, to my knowledge, that film must have existed. Grau died in not, about 1975-78 time okay. um, in, in, in Switzerland. Now, I presume that his family will have his, uh, his goods, and perhaps among them is this would be incredible because there is no film of Alistair Crowley, and we know there's loads of film of Gurdjieff. It'd be lovely to have some. And he filmed him. He filmed him walking. There was a, a famous walk that Grosha describes in one of his books for the for the Fraternitas Saturni, where Crowley's walking with um, Karl Germer 
who was the interpreter. That's how Crowley got to meet Carl Gurman. Yeah. Supposedly the successful in the OTA. He's walking and he noticed, uh, Grosha did, that Crowley seemed to be greeting somebody to the left right. and right in this right. forest walk, in Dewald, as you say in Germany, walking yeah. in the forest this afternoon. And Grosha was convinced that Crowley was uh, communicating to the little uh, spirit creatures of the woods. <laughs> he said he felt them that they'd come out to greet him. Okay. The most incredible story. And he, he wrote that in the 50s. Didn't wow. need to write it. And he had, no, he had nothing to gain by writing it. And I, mm. don't, I think it's a remarkable little, little snippet of, of, that Crowley obviously had, for some people, a real uh, aura wow. mm. of, of spiritual power that could be recognized by nature. Wow. I, now, this would accord very much with his own uh, talking about the Siddhis, you know, these unconscious gifts that come yeah. to... So, so it's a, an educated guess that in some world, a world somewhere in Switzerland, there is a, um, a... There must be. I mean, why would you get rid of it? Mm. Um, and Grau, Grau stayed as a member of the Swiss OTO, which was run by Metzger. Right. Um, I believe it's practically died out now. There was a sort of a, an OTO village. Um, the name of the village escapes me in Switzerland. But you could, it's all, it's in the, probably in the notes to my book uh, right. on Berlin all the information you'd need if you really wanted to trace it. It'd be great if somebody did. Wouldn't well, it be fantastic? Yeah. Make like, a wonderful film, wouldn't it? I mean, that, you could build a whole film around that. Nice way to do it. Too. You know, I, I always thought about making a script out of, out of Alistair's life because that life is so rich and there's Join no... Join the queue, yeah. yeah there's, no, there's no... I mean, Hollywood makes movies out of everything but somehow evades the topic of his life. They're frightened of him. Mm. They're frightened of him. Yeah. Of course they are. You know, how, you can, how much is the... You can, rate, you can make horror films, yeah. But that, that, everyone knows that the demon is special effects. Well, there's no, there's no special effects with Crowley, is it? It's true. When you, when you look at, you know, at um, Freemasonry and, and Western esotericism and, and, you know, the whole strand of spiritual experience from that, that side, if you look at it today... Like how much did it develop from like when 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 Crowley took over uh, the Golden Dawn and when he developed the, the Astromagentum and 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 the Otto? So how much how much is it informed by modern psychological theories? How much how much tradition is there? You know, um, you, you you know what I'm getting at. Like how much did it develop into our time? Can you can well? You Come on. I mean, uh, Crowley is part of the great explosion um, and implosion of theosophy. I mean, it was the appearance of the Theosophical Society in 1875 in New York that is a real critical event in reviving any respect for what we call Western esotericism. Blavatsky, you mean? Of course, Blavatsky. Mm. She... she her um, turning on Colonel Olcott is the beginning. Now, had things gone, Blavatsky is, is of course, dead by what, 1892 or 93. Um, after her, unfortunately, the Theosophical Movement has a big problem because Annie Besant has come in on the scene. Annie Besant has her own 
agenda. I think without Crowley, uh, we would have ended up with a sort of an esotericism, which was, well, it wasn't only Crowley, was it? Because a lot of people split with Besant and a lot of people split from the Theosophical Society. The Golden Dawn itself is a split from the Theosophical Society because Anna Kingsford, uh, who was really the beginning of the Golden Dawn, I think the real inspiration for it. Uh, she and Maitland had, had left active service in the Theosophical Society. Mm. The Theosophical Society prepared, excited all these people, got them to a point, and then they found, okay, but where do we go from here? Steiner, Rudolf Steiner was absolutely annoyed that, 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 that Blavatsky had gone over to India and basically was telling us that Buddhism and Hinduism were the answer. Mm. These were the true Aryans. They are this Aryan thing. These were the true Aryans. This is the true philosophy. And if we read the Vedas and the Upanishads and as much uh, Buddhism as we can, we're going to be very close to the true master. Of course, remember Blavatsky's anti-Christian. There's no question that she, she was, she, which of course would have appealed to Crowley. Right. Um, she thought we don't need, we don't really need the Christian element because that's only produced the church. Whereas this stuff is dealing with the psyche and the real hidden powers of the human mind. In, in a more scientific manner. And of course, theosophy wants to bring uh, spirituality and science together. This is a very important thing of it. And they had this phrase they still use, you know, the, the, high, the, the, the highest religion is truth or something like that, which... So, but now, now going to... No, I'm, I'm, yeah, but I'm trying, I'm trying to I build up to it. You ask right. these very large questions. Right. Um, What's Crowley's impact on that is enormous because he frees, he frees this esoteric tradition from the conservatives. And the, by the conservatives, I mean people who were afraid to let go of Blavatsky or afraid to let go of Christian Gnosis uh, or, or, you know, Rudolf Steiner can't leave the Christian religion alone. He's, got a, he's, he's still a Christian community as far as he's concerned. Crowley's prepared to go right out and say, um, we have no confessional obligations at all. The new eon is uh, based on cosmic principles, and his use of Egyptian gods is merely to give that some historical background. His belief was that these gods of Egypt were the laws of nature, anthropomorphized or, gi or given a personality. Uh, he said, but they're basically their laws of nature. And, and he said that the new religion, you know, on his magazine, The Equinox, the aim, of the aim of religion, the method of science. So union with God being the aim. And method of science means here is a, here we are developing a system for reaching that. And you would have thought that this, I would say, laudable and necessary aim to save us from materialism which I, is a word they should use instead of capitalism, but understand what it means, uh, to save us from materialism and the disappearance into nature. Uh, Crowley is providing an idea that we really need to work on. And um, unfortunately, we're, I mean, in, in our time, we're now faced with the enemy within uh, in our culture, what, uh, who have become basically terrified of 
religion because of the fundamentalist uh, uh, explosion in the East, which they are mentally not equipped to deal with. Whereas in the 19th century, when the British were in India and had to deal with the Indian mutiny, which was started as a jihad, we, the British never had a moment's doubt that they were right and that the, uh, the religions that favoured sort of hysterical warfare um, were wrong. Now we have this relativism fostered by the United Nations and goodness knows how many other organisations that we cannot judge the uh, so-called spiritual traditions of other countries and therefore they must be respected which kind of leaves us in a bit of problem when some of these respected spirit traditions send people in lorries into crowds of people. Now, and, we, and Western culture is simply standing back and saying, oh God, isn't this terrible? How can we persuade them that these things are not, not right? Well, you're not going to persuade them that they're not right. An individual might be persuaded. Perhaps an individual who read about Crowley might suddenly realize the penny might drop, ding, what this union with God stuff is all about. Right. And it's not about sitting in a line reciting texts, you know, like, an, like a robot. This is why Crowley hated Hitler, of course. He said, the, he said there's too much of this herd thing. He said, the, they're individual star. They, every man and every woman is a star. Is the key principle of the book of the law. Yeah. Which, of course, Kenneth Anger very nicely allied to Hollywood. You know, <laughs> any, anyone can be a star, you know, um, he's in his Hollywood Babylon book. But um, every man and every woman is a star. You have the right to shine in your own light. And it is not for others to say, do what they will, should be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will, which means don't get carried away and so romantic that you lose yourself, which people do, you know. Now, now Crowley had some specific rituals, you know, and... and Very simple rituals. As he got older, he was much less interested in rituals. In fact, when he did a ritual, he was sort of like, ah, oh, that was nice. I haven't done that for years. No, but... but, he, but too much is made of those rituals. Yeah, but what, I'm, what I mean to say is that, that how what I, to ask is like when you look at these orders today, like the Otto or like Rosicrucian, mm. how much are they still relying on those old, old um, rituals or conceptions? Or are they updated in a way through psychology? Or like, do you have a perspective on that? Well, I... I um there are many Rosicrucian organizations. Uh, there's, there's several in South America that are all independent, although, of course, all the members know each other. <laughs> As with all Masonic things, everybody knows what everyone's doing in a way. Um, the OTO simply uses the Gnostic Mass that Crowley wrote in Moscow in 1913. Right. Which, is, uh, which they like to do as it's written because it's written well. Why, why update it, you know? surely the esoteric people today need some kind of roots in the past. Crowley was very strong on this. He didn't believe you could be just completely new. He said any idea you've got has got to relate to a tradition. Right. strong on that. It's got to be tested through time. Right. Time is the, is the alembic, you know, it's the flame. Time purifies things, if you, you, know, if you like. Sure. Um, so... Ritual is not important for all people. It's certainly not important for me personally. It, in fact, it's to me, life is a ritual. Or you can turn anything you do into a ritual. I, I, I sometimes 
wash and do my teeth with a ritualistic flavor in my mind, stronger or not. I, I miss going to church, but I got very bored, you know, uh, just terribly bored and to a point where I think that, ah, oh, you know, I've been, but I've been so many times, I thought, wow, well, I've got the message. <laughs> but it would be nice to be part of a, uh, an open minded, lively, intellectually alert group of people who met once a week or once a month. I used to quite enjoy the Masonic ritual. Right. Uh, unfortunately, the Grand Lodge rituals are very long-winded. They're very old-fashioned. And I wouldn't want to change the words, but I would change the amount of stuff they do in an afternoon because they, they try to get too much in and you lose sight of the wood for the trees. Um, I think they need a bit of simplification there. Uh, and there's far too much stress on, is he going to remember the whole ritual? And if you right. do, you get a prize, you know, if you can do the whole thing from memory. Well, that's not the point. No, that's not the point. No. It's not a memory test, really. You know, the whole point is, I'd rather it was read well from a book. But uh, I, I couldn't comment about rituals because, because some people really need this regular thing. Right. Some people need it more, less. I like it when it's done well. Right. That uh, makes sense. Uh, and I rather wish I had a bit more ritual in my life because, you know, you can get so obsessed with your work that you, you lose these cosmic connections. Right. And it's nice to spend an hour being thinking cosmically. In other words, relating your position at life at a certain point to things that are much bigger than your immediate concerns. Sure. Uh, whether it's a moral or ethical principle that you should tune into a bit more. Anything which gets you out of this self, self, self thing. Messia Eliada, the, the holy, yeah. the sacred and the profane. You always have to have. Yeah, um, I think that's what good ritual can do. There's a difference between ritual and ritualism. Uh, when people worship the ritual for its own sake, always bear in mind the purpose. It's all about right. consciousness raising and, um, and unloading. You should be able to unload. You know, you shouldn't walk around with guilt. You should be able to unload it. I do believe in confession is good for the soul. And confessing in a group is quite a nice thing. You know, we've all gone wrong. Okay. Uh, and, and this sort of thing. I, think it's, uh, I, I don't think there's any, I don't think it's bad for people to ask for forgiveness. I think it's right. very good. Is that, is that one of those, to come, to, to come back to this with the, with the last question, is that something you would call a, a, a super doctrine because that's a that's a thought that you mentioned that i find very interesting um wh where are you with that is that some kind of a super doctrine what? you would you would which, where, which what have i said that suggested to you super doctrine no no no. because like when we started out the, this this conversation and, and you you were talking about well there are like wisdom traditions and and so on. They, they have a true core in a way and like a use a useful core and then you, you um, when you compare them you come to a kind of super doctrine and that's what you're kind of working on now um on, yeah, on i mean investigating the idea of whether we have in we have in fact inherited fragments of an ancient right consciousness right in, the, the theory is and it's a theory that exists in, in byways of masonry theosophy um and also it's in mainstream history as a suspicion is was there an ancient civilization or plural civilizations that had a, a consciousness that that was lost right. and the, the the key points that activate this consciousness have come down to us in bits fragments especially through esoteric 
orders. That's a long-standing theory. Like Graham, you're talking Graham Hancock and people like that? Well, he's taken it to levels of imaginative fantasy, in my opinion. Right. Uh, by his enthusiasm for the idea. I mean, he's only got to see a stone surrounded by a bit of moss and it's a temple, you know. <laughs> and, it, and, and, you know, he's off on it. He's love it. You know, he's tripping. He's tripping on archaeology. Right. In my, that's the way I see it. Right. Um, and... You know, it's his quest. I call it Hancockism, actually. Okay, okay. Uh, which is taking this thing a little too seriously, a little, little too far, and losing perspective. I, it may be that there was such a civilization. I certainly think they'll find Atlantis one day, you know, and it'll be either more or less than people might imagine. Uh, but there certainly won't be much left. <laughs> but that will only encourage more theory. Right. Um, but anyway, Plato doesn't tell this story of Atlantis because he wants you to know about ancient history. He's, tell, he's telling you as a, as a moral lesson in the Timaeus um, about the, the folly of people. You know, that's really what he's getting at there. And, but this idea, it was a belief of Stukeley, one of the first known Masons, that the, and he gets it from Newton, Isaac Newton, who he knew personally. Uh, the, uh, the original religion and the original science were one. That's the basic idea. So why isn't it now? You, you're um, talking also about al alchemy, where both things yeah, are... Yeah, no, I'm saying, I'm saying in the original civilization, oh, oh, right, oh, right, religion okay. and science were one. There was no distinction. We were talking knowledge. That's what my new book's about. It's about knowledge. It's about the... It's a history of knowledge. Right. Uh, and explaining how it is that we now have this thing called science over here and we have this thing called spirituality over here. And it's like by taking science away from spirituality, you've taken the body from the spirit and the spirit from the body. And surely right. there is some kind of something that's asking, the, I feel they want to be reconciled. Science and religion should be one because it's about knowledge, not knowledge of uh, knowledge, just knowledge. Yeah, yeah, it makes are. sense. Mm. You know, and if if science isn't concerned with the invisible, I don't know what it is. Nearly everything they study today is invisible, uh, and you know that is. When, when what do we mean when we talk about spirituality? What are, are we referring about a thing, or a mentality, or what? It's very. But we know we'll never get anywhere with that question because. The, the nature of the spiritual is it is not a thing. That's the characteristic. Therefore, it's not measurable. Uh, but we know it. We know it when it's not there, or we feel it's absent. Yep. We can talk about somebody being soulless or cold, and so on. We know. We know when this spirit, spiritual thing is alive. It comes out in music. It comes out in painting. It comes out in creativity. When somebody's spiritually alive, they're full of the metaphors are all there right. their flame on their heads love in their hearts these are all non-scientific things but without them there wouldn't be any science because nobody would be excited enough to look into science at all if they weren't motivated by spirit although today a lot of people are motivated because they think it's a good job or the government pays more if you do mathematics well i don't want scientists who are looking for a better paid job only I want scientists who have a, have a yearning 
to op an open mind, you know, uh, and to learn and understand. Otherwise, you wa we're wasting money on, on mere um, technicians. That's another problem today. We just, we, we, we've identified technology with science. Uh, technology is a wing, just one of it. I, I think uh, science is, I, I will say, science is an aspect of magic. It, is we, if we understand magic in the Crowleyan sense of the sure. art of the Magi, um, only because it enlarges the perspective, uh, which we desperately need. We need an enlarging perspective. It's very odd, isn't it? We have a Hubble telescope ever penetrating deeper and deeper and deeper into the minestrone of the cosmos. And yet our minds are getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In this particular period, it seems to me. What will the, the, the title of the book uh, be that you're currently working on? You have an idea already? Yeah, I'm going to call it The, uh, the Lost Pillars of Enoch. All right. When will it be out? Next year. Right. I think it'll be my, my, my caput book. You know, my, it's, it's, it's the crown on the... The crown it's the lid on the bottle all right okay crown on the it's it's the it's the i've had this is my 20th, 23rd commission book wow that's a lot yeah and it's the 22nd where it's made up entirely of my own words as it were so 22 paths to wisdom if you know your Kabbalah. It seems to me uh, it's enough. I, I see this book as a recapitulation of everything I've done before with an overall um, theory of knowledge running through it. Not as, a, not as a, a, a dictate for people to learn, but it's meant to stimulate an understanding of the process of knowledge in its fullest sense. And it covers all history. Um, well, sure. That sounds like an interesting... Fascinating book. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's my De Revolutionibus Orbium <laughs> Celestium. <laughs> you know, it's where I finally put the sun at the center of the cycles. Right. That's, right. The, that's the point of the book. But what was your other question? It was about, um, you asked, I'm not sure I answered it. Yeah, well, well I, I was like trying to figure out if, if you are one step closer in, in, in identifying those super doctrines. So that, that oh yeah, because I'd said forgiveness and all that. I'd said something yeah. about forgiveness. And I thought yeah. that's what you were referring to. Was yeah. Forgiveness, forgiveness, yeah. Super doctrine. Uh, well, it's uh, that's super doctrine. I, I would think that an understanding of the faults of others and the forgiveness of them, forgive as we are forgiven. I do think the Lord's Prayer, the Pater Noster, the essence of it contains probably all practical religion or practical religion, i.e. how to live. It doesn't contain, and it probably implies the content that any, I think the super doctrines there, will, I like the word super doctrine, maybe that's a book, <laughs> maybe I should call it In Search of the Super Doctrine, um, or Mega Doctrine, or Meta Doctrine, or Metadoxy. Hey, our new yeah. word, Metadoxy, right? We've had it. We've created a new word on your show. We're, we're meta, we believe in a metadoxy, right? So that's what we're after. Metadoxy, megadoxy, superdoxy, but not orthodoxy, right? Yeah, now, now we have it. I think yeah. that was the, maybe the purpose of our conversation. We, I we have a pole we can dance around. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's what I wanted to, I wanted to leave that anyway, uh, behind me uh, as my parting gift, I think, as uh, a way forward. I'm sick of pessimists who think we're post-historical, post-modern, going nowhere really. All we can do is play with words, um, resurrect old things, um, replay them, retro. I, I'm totally against this. I'm yeah. very much in favour of a new, new spiritual and creative space. It will always be linked to the past because we're, we are part of the past as we're part of the present and the future. Uh, and that's great. And the more we learn about the past properly, uh, the more equipped we are to deal with, with some of our problems. But problems will always come to us as, as new. But uh, fun they're fundamentally, even apocalypse or destruction, which is constantly being uh, produced by the media, they're giving us a graphic apocalypse every night. Today, it's storms in New Orleans. Sure. You know, then it'll be earthquakes again somewhere. There's always this going. The earth is constantly you know, churning itself up like a gastric, uh, it's, a, it's a gastric planet. You know? And we're not very good doctors of it. We've learned that. Uh, but I see no grounds. We're quite young as human beings. That's right. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly right. And I do think people who want it all in their lifetime are greedy. Um, if you want to make the world a better place, don't tell others to do it. Just do it yourself. Sure. You can, there's all sorts of ways you can do it. You know, one of the there's, this, there's this theories where we are collectively 16 years old, maybe 16 and a half. And that I makes kind of sense if you look at broader shape of things. Could be. I, 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 I think that's true of the culture. It's not of me personally. I feel. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean like as a culture. Yeah, yeah. No, adolescence, you mean, yeah. Yeah, well, Crowley calls it the eon of the child, doesn't he? The it's eon true. of Horus. So yeah, I think it's more childish than adolescent, although uh, let's not argue about that. Um, I always called adolescence adult essence because that's the nature of it. Ad you know, the word adult, English word sure. adult, like sure. addling an egg. Adult essence. All right. Is adult adolescence. Mm. Uh, uh, it's, it's when you, you can't work out who you are where you're going and what you're here for. So the tendency in adolescence is to project all that insecurity that's in yourself onto things around you. Right. De and desperately trying to find an objective correlate of what you imagine is going to get you out of it. So right. for some people that's political activism or the Green Party or some thing which accords with your personal disquiet and you find your answer. And then, of course, you're lost, in my opinion. The sure. moment you think you've found the answer in, in any relative form of thought, uh, or certainly beware of any fashionable thought. Uh, <laughs> very rarely was truth in fashion. Truth is the unwelcome guest That's true. at the human table. So I'm optimistic profoundly, but uh, I never forget the, what we're up against which is this enormous stupidity <laughs> endemic in our being here. Well, I think that's a good closing word. We talked almost for two hours and, and it was very delightening and, and enlightening for me. Good, no, I like that. Delightening. What a good word. No, no, is, yeah. it, is that even a word? No, it is now. You've just made it. A delightening oh, right. experience. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, yeah, Both delightful and enlightening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
thank you very much that you took the time on this Sunday um, midday. I know you have probably have other things to attend to. I dare but, say. <laughs> um, but but um, thank you very much that you did that. That's a pleasure. <laughs>